good to see you guys this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. We're going to be finishing up our series in Jonah today. And I have to tell you, Jonah chapter 4 to me is one of the strangest yet most interesting chapters in the entire Bible. And to understand why it's so strange yet so interesting, you, you got to know a little bit of what, what happened in Jonah chapters 1 through 3. In chapter 1, God calls this man Jonah, who was a prophet, to go to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was a one of the largest cities in the world back then, and uh, it was in the Assyrian Empire. And the Ninevites, they were not good people. They were violent, vicious, brutal people. And so God tells Jonah, I want you to go preach to them. And Jonah runs in the opposite direction. And long story short, he's on a boat, storm hits the boat, he's thrown overboard, he gets swallowed by a fish. That's all of chapter one and chapter two. Jonah has this come to Jesus moment in the belly of the fish. He prays to God, kind of repents and, and sees God in a new light. The fish spits him onto dry land. Chapter three, God calls Jonah a second time to go to Nineveh. And this time he answers and he obeys. And he goes and he preaches one of the shortest sermons in the history of the world. And the Ninevites, rather shockingly, they receive his message. And they turn from their sin and they turn to God. And if Hollywood were making the book of Jonah into a movie, that's where it would end, right? Because Jonah, you know, it would be a great lesson about you can't run from God because he'll chase you down and then he'll get you to do his will anyway. And everyone lives happily ever after because Jonah 3, verse 10, it ends by saying God relented pouring out judgment. I mean, it seems like just such a fitting ending. Maybe one, one more verse that says something like, and Jonah returned to his own land rejoicing. That's how we would expect. But Jonah is not a Hollywood movie. Jonah's an indie movie, right? It's one of those movies that it makes sense until, you know, the last 30 minutes, and then there's this strange stuff happening. There's a strange plant growing and then worms and all this weird stuff. And you're like, what's going on? Did I really pay $8 for this movie? That's kind of the way Jonah feels. But man, it's fascinating. And I think there's a word in Jonah chapter 4. I mean, there's, there's always a word for it. But there is a word in Jonah chapter 4 for the American church that we desperately need to hear. And so what I want to do with you this morning is I want to just simply walk, spend the first half walking through the text, and then I want to spend the second half of the sermon talking through it. Like, What, is, what does this mean for us? And to give, give you a little bit of, you know, bearings, we'll start in the very last verse of chapter 3, in which we read, this is right after the Ninevites repent, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened, period. End of chapter 3, chapter 4 begins with these words, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. This is strange. I know pastors who would give their right arms. I know pastors who would who'd be willing to give up their lives to just have a taste of what Jonah experienced here. I mean, under Jonah's preaching, the greatest revival in the history of the world occurred. The city of Nineveh, the very fabric of the city was transformed by his preaching. They used to be violent and vicious and wicked. They gave all that stuff up because Jonah came and preached. Jonah should be rejoicing. He should be flipping out. Can you believe what God has done? Instead, he's greatly displeased. And I think that's actually a pretty soft translation. It actually says that Jonah viewed this as a great evil, that he's really 
angry. He's burning with anger. And, you know, maybe, maybe to understand just how strange this is, this is, imagine Billy Graham after a crusade where tens of thousands of people come up front, you know, and they come to faith, that he walks off the stage and he throws his Bible on the ground He says, I'm just so angry I could die. I hate this. I hate it when people repent. I hate it when they turn to God. I hate it when people give up their sin. I'm so stinking angry. That's what's happening here. And what we learn in verse 2 is Jonah's angry, not with the Ninevites. No. Jonah's angry with God. We're told in verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah says, I knew this would happen. That's why I didn't want to go. I knew I would go, I would preach, and because you are abounding in compassion and you're slow, I knew that you would save them. And I do not want them to be saved. Now here we get to Jonah's heart, right? The reason Jonah's angry is because God's not angry. The reason Jonah is fuming is because God, God's a God of grace, and God's showing grace to the Ninevites. And Jonah, he despises the Ninevites. Now, we talked about this a little last week, but you got to understand the Ninevites, they were not good people. They were Assyrians, like I mentioned. Assyria was the superpower of that day. They were violent, they were vicious, and they were the single greatest threat to the people of God. And so Jonah, he saw these people, and what he wanted is he wanted God to nuke them. And God saves them instead. And he's burning with anger. And we're told in verse 3 that Jonah prays, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah would rather die than live in a world where people like the Ninevites are shown grace. Now, God doesn't leave Jonah to just wallow and sulk in his anger because we're told in verse 4 that, you know, Jonah makes this request to be murdered for God to kill him. And God doesn't dignify that with a response. God takes it a different direction. And the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry, Jonah? Jonah, have, and I think you got to emphasize the you there. Jonah, have you any right to be angry. You, Jonah, of all people. I mean, wasn't it just a few weeks ago, Jonah, that you were the one who rebelled against me and ran from me and jumped in the sea and were going to drown, but I saved you? Wasn't it just a few weeks ago that, that you were singing a song to me from the belly of the fish, singing, praising me for my compassion, my grace, my salvation? Jonah, do you, do you have any right to be angry? Now, I think we can, we can kind of laugh at Jonah and we can say, gosh, he's so foolish. But I don't think we should write him off because I think all of us, if we're honest, we can relate to Jonah on one level or another. I mean, what Jonah is seeing is he's seeing God bless people he really doesn't like. He's seeing God bless people who really don't deserve it. I mean, if you live long enough, you follow Jesus long enough, there are times where it sure seems like God gets it wrong. Like he blesses the wrong people. He blesses people who hurt you. He blesses people who sin against you and who cause you to suffer. We can relate to the anger. 
You know, if you're really into politics, the Ninevites in your life are probably the opposing political party. Just burning anger. No, no, no. You don't bless them. You curse them. Every single one of us, whether it's a group of people, it's a specific person, I think we can relate. But what God is saying is, Jonah, really? I get that you want to be angry, but they turned from their sin and they've turned to me. Why would you be angry? Jonah doesn't answer God's question. Instead, we're told in verse 5, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So so God says, I'm going to show them grace. And then he says, do you have any right to be hangry? And maybe Jonah like misinterpreted that question because Jonah responds like, well, I'm going to go up. I'm going to get out of the city. I'm going to sit up on this hill. And I think what Jonah is really secretly hoping for here is that the Ninevites might repent of their repenting and that God might relent of his relenting and that they still might get nuked. And what, what Jonah wants, he wants a good seat to be able to see Nineveh get nuked, but he doesn't want to be in the blast radius. That's why he gets out of the city. And so he's sitting up on the hill, just fingers crossed, maybe God still will wipe these fools out. Now, it's important to know all of this is taking place in what's now Iraq. It's a desert. It's blistering hot. And we're told that Jonah kind of made a makeshift shelter. And so while he's sitting up there, just angry with God, angry about everything, but still secretly hoping that God might wipe out the Ninevites, we're told in verse 6 that the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. So as he's sitting there waiting, God provides a plant that provides shade for Jonah. And for the first time in the entire book, Jonah's happy about something. And he's happy about this plant. The only thing Jonah loves in this entire book is this plant. Jonah in his mind is thinking, ah, finally. Finally, the Lord, maybe, maybe the Lord's softening up. Maybe there still will be some shock and awe. Maybe he's just showing me favor. Like, this is what I deserve. I shouldn't be in this miserable condition. I deserve this plant. I deserve this shade. And just as he's getting comfortable under the plant, we read, at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So now this is strange. God gives the plant, sends the plant. God's always sending stuff in this book. He sends the storm, the fish, the plant, and then here he sends a worm which chews the vine, falls over and wilts on the ground, and then God sends a scorching east wind. It seems like God's almost provoking Jonah here, doesn't it? Like God's picking a fight with him. Jonah lashes out and Here we get to the climax of the book. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, 
You've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hands from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Question mark, the end. It's the end of the book. The vine grows, it dies. I'm angry enough to die. Are you right to be angry about the plant? Yes, I'm right to be angry about the plant. You care about the plant, I care about the people. End of the book. <laughs> what, what do we do with this? And I'll be honest, I, I preached this 10 years ago and I totally understood the book 10 years ago. I preach it now and I don't understand it nearly as much. Like this, this is a challenging book. And I think what I want to hold before you is two things from the book. I want to talk about with the rest of our time what Jonah's big problem is. And I want to talk about the problem with that problem. Like the real problem with that problem. I know it's a little obscure, but just, just track with me. What's, what's Jonah's big problem? Jonah's big problem, it's not that he has bad theology. Jonah actually has the right theology. Jonah's quoting Deuteronomy. How many of you can do that? <laughs> theology is on point. It's also not that Jonah's disobedient. I mean, granted, it took a violent storm and a giant fish to get him there, but when God came to Jonah a second time, he obeyed. Jonah's problem is not his theology, his head, and it's not his obedience, his hand. Jonah's problem is his heart. And that's what God's trying to show him at the very end when he says, do you do, you do right to be angry about the vine? God's saying, really, Jonah? Really, you want to be in charge and make the decisions. You care about a plant, and I care about people. All you care about is shade. So give me some shade, Lord. God says, what I care about is salvation. You care about your comfort. And God says, I care about seeing people cross over from death to life. Jonah, you lack compassion. But God is abounding in compassion. He says, there's 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. What God's saying there is, he's saying these people are clueless. They don't know right from wrong. They're morally bankrupt. I mean, their moral compass is broken. And Jonah says, yeah, exactly. That's why you should nuke them. And God says, no, that's why I should save them. Should I not be concerned with that great city? Should I not pity that great city? Should I not love that great city? And Jonah's answer up to this point was, no, you shouldn't. Jonah, his heart has become shriveled like the vine that provided him shade. And so the question is why? That's his problem. His problem is at his heart, but what's the real problem in his heart? And the answer is that he's self-righteous, plain and simple. Now, that's a phrase we throw around a lot. You know, it's kind of a way to insult them. Well, they're just being self-righteous. And different people mean different things when they, self, when they say self-righteous. What I mean when I say self-righteous, someone who is self-righteous finds their righteousness in themselves. It's really simple. Someone who is self-righteous finds their rightness, their goodness, their worth, their identity, and who they are, what they've done, where they come from, what they've achieved. And so our self-righteousness can be based around our morality, how good of a life we live. It can be based around our pedigree, you know, our, our tribe that we come from, which is what was happening with Jonah. He was part of Israel. Israel is God's chosen people. Israel is better than everyone else because God loves them in a special way. At least that's what he thought. This self-righteousness, it creeps into 
all of our lives, but it's so evident in Jonah. What self-righteousness does is it makes you angry and it causes you to feel superior to other people. Maybe you don't feel superior, but what self-righteousness does is it turns everyone else into a competitor or a threat. Right? Because you're finding your identity and how good you're doing. And so you got to be doing better than other people. You know, I went hiking uh, like a month, month and a half ago with a group of guys from Sojourn on the Appalachian Trail, and there's a lot of black bears on the trail. Now, black bears, they're not nearly as dangerous as like grizzlies, but nevertheless, you don't want to snuggle with them. Uh, like they're, they're dangerous. And there's a saying on the trail, you don't have to be able to outrun the bear, you just have to be able to outrun someone else, Right? Like, what do you do with the bears? Well, just make sure you're not the slowest guy in the group and you'll be fine. Now, I think that's actually a really good illustration of what self-righteousness is and what it does. You don't have to be the best, but you do have to be better than other people. You don't have to have it all together, but you have to have it better and more together than, than other people, some other people. And, and the problem is it turns relationships into competition You view other people as someone you have to beat. And it's really hard to love someone when you feel like you need to be better than them. It's really hard to have compassion on someone when you find your identity in being better than them and smarter than them. Jonah's self-righteousness, it's it's shriveled his heart. That's the problem. And the problem with that problem is it's not like Jonah's good. That's one of the things you have to see. Being self-righteous doesn't mean you're good. Now, you might appear to be good. You might have a very clean, very moral life, but you're not good. You still have the same evil and wickedness in your heart as anyone else, but you're actually blind to it. And so in a lot of ways, being self-righteous is about as bad as you can get. You know, the, the great irony in this text is the same evil that's in the hearts of the Ninevites is in Jonah's heart too. You know, what was the... The evil of the Ninevites, they were violent and they slaughtered their anger, their enemies. And what was the evil in Jonah's heart? He was angry and he wanted to see his enemies slaughtered. Like it's kind of funny. You can imagine Jonah praying to God, God, you can't show them grace. They're a hateful, heartless people who lack compassion. <laughs> God looking at Jonah, really, Jonah? They're hateful, heartless, and they lack compassion? Sounds like someone else I know. Now, maybe you look at that and you say, well, yeah, yeah, they both had sin, of course, but the Ninevites were much worse sinners. And man, if if you think that way, if you think in categories of like really bad sin and then not so bad sin, that's your self-righteousness talking. That's not the scriptures talking. In the Bible, Sin is sin. God doesn't play games with sin. He doesn't keep a list of respectable sins, not that big of a deal, and then damnable sins. All sin is sin. All sin deserves judgment. Jesus makes this clear in the most famous sermon he ever preached. He said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. It's the Ninevites. But I tell you, Jonah, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says, you fool. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of hell. 
Jonah had the same wickedness, the same evil brewing in his life that the Ninevites had. The problem was he was self-righteous. And what self-righteousness does is it blinds you to it. And so when God comes to the Ninevites and he says, you better turn, you better give up your wickedness and violence, they're not self-righteous. They're kind of glorying in their sin. And they're like, you know what? We are pretty bad. We probably should turn. But what self-righteousness does is it blinds us and makes us think, I'm a pretty good person. And we talked about this a little last week, how many Christians in America, they couldn't actually name particular sins in their life. Well, the reason why is because so much of what we think of Christianity is actually self-righteous religion. Self-righteous religion, I mean, it's bad in so many ways. It makes you an angry person, a hateful person. You're not a fun person to be around. But the real problem with self-righteousness, I mean, the problem at the very heart of Jonah's problem, the real problem with self-righteousness is that it blinds us to our need for grace, and it keeps us from experiencing the wonders of God's grace. As I was working through this text this week, my mind again and again kept going back to a passage in Luke 15. Luke 15, Jesus tells one of the most famous stories he ever told about a father who had two sons. And a lot of you are familiar with it, but some of you aren't. Uh, this father, kind of give you a quick rundown. This father, he has two sons. The youngest son comes to the father, and he says, hey, I want my inheritance now. Now, that's something that's kind of an offensive thing. Dad, I wish you were dead. Can I just have the money now? And shockingly, shockingly, the father gives him the money, which that, that's probably a sermon in and of itself. But the young son, he takes the money and he blows it all on booze, women, and wild living. Before you know it, he's broke, he's starving, and he's hating life, and he's feeding pigs, and he's longing to eat the food that he's feeding the pigs. And, and as he's feeding the pigs, he comes to his senses, and he says, you know, my father's servants have a better life than I have. And so we read in Luke 15, verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the dad's like, who cares? The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. And that's a great story. There's a reason it's one of Jesus' most famous parables. But what a lot of us don't recognize is that's actually only half the story. And the point of this parable is actually not that God welcomes in prodigals, although that's certainly true. It's actually a deeper meaning because Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees. And I mean, the Pharisees, they were the champions of being self-righteous. And remember, the father, he didn't have one son, he had two sons. So while the father's throwing the party for his lost but now found son, his prodigal son, we're told in verse 25, Jesus says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, you know, 
problem number one already. All right, people are having fun. There's music, dancing, what's going on? So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Kind of that sound familiar? I mean, Jonah... (laughs) And the older brother here, they're both cut from the same cloth. They're both angry. They both refuse to go and celebrate. They refuse to join the party. You know, there's a party happening here. There's also a party happening in Nineveh. It's going to look differently, but there's a spiritual awakening happening. And where's Jonah? He's just like the older brother. He's outside the party with his arms crossed, angry. Another parallel is that that God or the Father goes out to both of them and talks to them. And then the last and, and final parallel between these two stories is that both of them end without an ending. Both of them end without an ending. Did the older brother go join the party? Did Jonah come to his senses and repent and go to, go to Nineveh? And the answer is we don't know. And that's the point. We're not supposed to know. What, what these stories, you know, Jonah's life and then this story, they're given to us so that we might think. They teach us a lesson, and it's a really important lesson. And maybe it's the most important lesson you could ever hear for someone who's grown up in church and been around church your entire life. What's the lesson of Jonah? What's the lesson of the older brother? It's this. Your sin will never keep you from experiencing the party of God's grace, but your self-righteousness will. Let me say it again. Your sin will never keep you from experiencing the party of God's grace, but your self-righteousness will. You know, there are so many people in the church who are like Jonah or the older brother. They're good people. I mean, really good people. They'd be good to have as neighbors. They're good citizens. But they're utterly lost. And do you know why they're utterly lost? Because they still think God is keeping score. Because when they think of God in the heavens, they think he's got a scorecard and his tiny little pencil and everything you do and you don't do, he's keeping score and he's grading you. And what this does is it leads to this life of self-righteousness and I have to have it all together. And the problem with the self-righteousness is it makes you angry and it keeps you from experiencing grace. But grace means, grace means God's no longer keeping score. Grace means God's torn up the scorecard and he's in the clubhouse buying a round of drinks for you. And yet what self-righteousness does, you can't go get the drink. I mean, what is fascinating from Jonah and Luke 15, what is fascinating is you got a guy who's blown all of his dad's money who slept with prostitutes, who's an alcoholic. You have people who are vicious, vile, murderous people who wanted nothing to do with God. What are they doing? They are partying with God. 
They are celebrating. And then you've got the good, faithful prophet, the guy who had the Old Testament memorized. You've got the good, obedient son who's always done everything that his father wanted. And where are they? They're outside the party. And it's not because God's kicked them out of the party. It's because they don't want to go in. Because they're looking at it and saying, no, no, no. My score is so much better than their score. You don't throw parties for losers like that. You throw parties for winners like me. And God's saying, what are you talking about? The game's over. There is no game anymore. I'm not keeping score because I'm a God of grace and compassion. Grace means the game is over and the party has begun. And the, the only requirement, the only thing you need to get into the party is to realize you have nothing to bring to the party but your sin. Like you can't bring your self-righteousness to the party. If you bring it, Jesus will turn you away. But you can bring your sin to the party. And I know that's a strange thing to bring to a party. Hey, you going to the party? Yeah, I'm going to the party. What are you bringing? I'm bringing my resentment and bitterness. What are you bringing? I'm bringing my, my jealousy and my greed and my hatred. Cool, I hope someone brings selfishness. We, you know, we haven't had any of that in a while. But the party of grace, that's what you do. You bring it. And what's happened is you show up at the door and Jesus says, I'll take your sin and then I'm going to give you my righteousness. And then I'm going to give you my robe. And then I'm going to give you a ring. And then I'm going to cook you a steak. You know, your sin will never keep you from entering that party, but your self-righteousness will. Now, just yesterday, my kids were playing hide-and-seek. They're still learning the rules. And so what often happens is they're playing. They quit playing, but they fail to tell one of their siblings that they're done playing. And so the kid's just sitting, you know, under a box for an hour. Um, so I explained to them, hey, after you catch someone, you have to yell. You guys know what you yell? Ali, Ali, oxen free, right? And my kid said, why? I said, I don't know. It's just part of kiddom. Like, you can't be a kid, and you're not a kid if you never yell out, Ali, Ali, oxen free. And they said, well, well, what does that mean? And I said, it means the game's over. And I said, it means you can come out of hiding. And when Jesus Christ is on the cross and he cries out, it is finished, it was the cosmic, ali, ali, oxen free. Like, he, you come out of hiding. You don't have to be afraid of getting caught. Someone else has been caught. But Jonah, the older brother, so many religious folks who are like the kid in the neighborhood, and I think every neighborhood has this kid, who are annoyed when they hear that call. You know, they're, they're annoyed. You know why they're annoyed? Because they say, I had the best hiding spot. No one was ever going to find me. I can hide better than anyone. And you're like, okay. You want to be alone the rest of your life? Like, the game's over. The ice cream truck's here. Like, we, we should celebrate. And we should invite people in. It's self-righteousness. Man, it doesn't like that. Self-righteousness is bent on justice. And in the end, if justice rules, and if God rules with just strict justice towards us without the work of his son, we're all hopeless. So if you're someone here who's been running from God through wild living, Jonah's the book for you. Like you can't outrun God, and you can't outsend God's grace. And I want you to know, 
if you're in that place, you've been running from God, God wants to invite you in. And he wants to take your sin, and Jesus wants to give you his righteousness. But if you're someone here who's been hiding from God, and gosh, there's so many of us here, myself included. If you're someone who's been hiding from God behind your good works, and I'll tell you, it's a lonely and miserable way to live. You know, I think of the anger of Jonah and the older brother, and then I think of the anger you see in so many religious folks. Have you ever noticed how religious folks are so angry all the time? Why are they so angry? And the answer is because they're self-righteous. And when you're self-righteous, you get angry when things don't go your way. That's like a classic symptom of self-righteousness. You get angry. And self-righteousness, it doesn't produce, doesn't produce the fruit that God wants to produce in our life. You know, self-righteousness, it produces anger, bitterness, resentment, jealousy. You know what grace produces? Compassion, joy. Hope, love, kindness. The list goes on and on. And so if you're someone here, and there's so many of us, if you think that's not me, then it's most definitely you. Someone here has been struggling with self-righteousness. What I don't want you to miss is that the Father doesn't write you off, and he doesn't write us off. In both stories, in the life of Jonah and the story of the two sons, the father goes out even to the self-righteous. And he says, hey, come to the party. It's such a better way of living. So as we come to the Lord's table, what we're doing here, this is like a, a dramatic representation of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And the night before his crucifixion, Jesus took a loaf of bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of my blood that's been given for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And what we do at the table is we remember, okay, I am saved and I am loved by God, not because I've done so much great stuff, but because Jesus did the one great act of love for me. He gave his body and he gave his blood for me. And the table It's a place where we can lay down our self-righteousness. You come to the table with open hands. It's a place where you're reminded that we are loved and we are saved because God is gracious and compassionate, not because we are good and moral. Now, we get that and then we forget it, don't we? We get it. Monday, we kind of get it. By Friday, we're just angry at the world and everyone else because they're not as good as us. That's why we have to come to the table. It was our sin that broke his body and, and shed his blood. And he gave it freely. So if you're here and you're a believer, I would encourage you to come to eat, to drink, to celebrate what God has done and what God is doing, to celebrate the fact that God throws parties for sinners. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to put your faith and your hope in Jesus. You can't out-sin his grace, and he wants to offer you a new life. Let me pray.